Good morning and welcome to American View on this Friday, February 14th. It is Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day to all our listeners out there. We're happy to be with you here in Hillsdale, Michigan today. This is American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. My name is Ben Dietrich. I'm here alongside my producer, Andrew Nell. And now, of course, Molly Hemingway. She's here from D.C. She's a senior editor at The Federalist. She's also a senior journalism fellow at Hillsdale and D.C.'s campus. Molly, thank you for joining me today. It is great to be here with you. It's good to be with you again as well. Last time we talked about your book um, on Brett Kavanaugh, Justice on Trial. Great book. Love the book. If any of our listeners are interested in it, they can find it on Amazon. But today, I want to ask you about some other you know, new breaking stories. Of course, there's a lot that's happened in Iowa and New Hampshire, and I understand you've been there, so we want to ask you a little bit about that. But first, let's ask you about the fact that yesterday, Attorney General um, Barr went on and to, I believe it was ABC, and he had an interview in which he told the president to stop using Twitter because he did not like the way that it was coming off as though the President Trump was influencing um, Roger Stone's sentencing. Now, of course, that's the way it appeared to some on Twitter, but it was not clear that that was actually what actually happened. What is your take on that? Do you think the consequences are as big as perhaps some of the networks like MSNBC, um, you know, CNN, and then also some conservatives like David French or Jonah Goldberg are making it out to be? Well, first off, Attorney General William Barr is one of the most interesting people to listen to when he's doing an interview. And so this was a very interesting interview done with a justice reporter at ABC News, I believe. Um, He had been facing a lot of criticism from people who seem to believe that there should be no political oversight or accountability for the bureaucrats at the Department of Justice. What had happened is that people who had worked on the Robert Mueller special counsel, who were frankly, disgruntled employees, Mm -hmm. had recommended an absolutely absurd nine-year, seven- to nine-year sentence for Roger Stone, who's this, you know, kind of shady guy who lied to Congress and then, you know, basically jokingly, but still you're not supposed to do this, threatened one of his buddies to not hurt him in his testimony. So convicted um, and, you know, maybe someone would think that this is the kind of penalty that could result in no prison term or a few months or 18 months. But they recommended seven to nine yeah, years. It was crazy. utterly absurd. And also, it was different than what they had talked about. So yeah. when, you're, when you have politically sensitive investigations and prosecutions, you actually talk about how to handle these things. And so it was the understanding of the political leadership that that would not be recommended, that they would, in fact, not really make a recommendation except to say it should be less than that and that the judge could set the, could set the sentencing. Instead, they surprise everybody with this seven to nine year sentence. And the attorney general, I, I did some reporting on this, when, as soon as he finds out, he knows he needs to step in and and exert some control over what is clearly a rogue situation. However, after that, after he makes the decision that he's going to have to amend this recommendation, President Trump comes out and he's tweeting against this recommendation. He's tweeting against the judge. And then when Barr the next morning does issue the revision, he, com- he compliments Barr. And so even though there had been no contact between the White House and the attorney general, and that is that was already known because the attorney general said there was no contact. Donald Trump said, you know, in response to a question right. that there was no contact and, you know, say what you want about Donald Trump, but he's pretty transparent, you know, on these types of things. And so people should never have reported that there was contact or suggested right. there was contact because both parties had explicitly said so there was not. It's, it's too strong to say it was implied. 
from that tweet. That tweet. There, it wasn't implied, but people assumed from reading the, tr- the well, tweet. Well, I'm just that, journalists shouldn't assume or yeah. say something is implied. They should just go based on the facts. And yeah. so, uh, President Trump does like to give a running commentary on everything that's happening in the world. Um, and what happened in this interview? In this interview, though, is that Attorney General Barr was telling was telling him, when you do that, it hurts my ability to do my job. And I think everybody kind of knows that Barr might be the only adult in Washington, D.C. right now. So keeping him from doing his job is not a good thing. (laughs) And he's maybe the only person in D.C. whose actual work product is so um, qualified that he he can say something like that and have it taken seriously. And in fact, the White House was asked, like, are you going to fire him? And they said, no, you know, but we have no problem with what he said. Right. I, I think, you know, people assume that anytime somebody steps out of line um, with Trump, that Trump immediately dislikes them or is going to fire them. I don't think that's necessarily the case if you are, he's honest about his criticism. But that's that's another matter. Um, Except I do, if I can say, yeah, please. people all the time say, oh, Donald Trump is going to do this or that. And right. they clearly don't understand him. <laughs> and after years of being bad at prognostication or bad at predictions, maybe you should think about a different line of work. And a lot yeah. of people in D.C. are extremely bad at knowing, uh, at understanding him, interpreting him, understanding what motivates him, and they should not be in the business of punditry when they're so bad at it. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, There's something you said in the beginning of this where you mentioned the fact that Roger Stone... Uh, that the people who prosecuted him had formerly worked in the Mueller tri- trial. Is that some reporting that you've done? Because I, I wasn't even aware of that. That was actually reported it. by the New York Times. Okay. The fact that they were sort of disgruntled, I think, yeah. is is more well known now. Um, the Mueller probe was put together by Robert Mueller, obviously, and he is someone who had been a Republican appointee. And that f- fact was used to bludgeon people so that there could be no criticism of the probe. But when he put together his probe, he managed to put together like a dozen and a half Democratic activists with no Republicans. And that makes it very hard to take it seriously. And some of those people, when they left government service, have gone on to become pundits on cable networks where they sound more extreme than the most like extreme resistance figure. And so if you want to have confidence in this probe, you don't want to have people with such partisan agendas. Mm. And it can be difficult. Right now we have a situation where the FBI and Department of Justice were both implicated and found to have behaved improperly in the surveillance and unwarranted spying on the Trump campaign. And a lot of people know that they were in, you know, quite involved right. in this false narrative. We need to have trust in the Department of Justice and FBI. And that doesn't happen when people behave politically. Let's talk about that because, you know, there was a story out this week uh, talking about Adam Schiff that the, he is refusing to hold a hearing over this, uh, the fact that, you know, there was improper um, actions taken in both the J- Justice Department or in the Justice Department, both the FBI and then, of course, the Attorney General's office with regards to these FISA hearing, uh, FISA courts. And he just does not want to hear about it. He does not want to talk about anything that could have happened under the Obama administration. And it seems quite one-sided to some. Um, what do you think? eventually will happen with this. I mean, obviously, there's Attorney General Barr, who's been pursuing this. And then um, I believe the Attorney Durham as well, the prosecutor, uh, has been pursuing it for a while now. And we haven't seen yet where this is going to end up. If you were to predict or from what you know, you know, is this going to be a bombshell of a story or is it going to pass and kind of dwindle? Well, first, it's sad, but not totally surprising that neither Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, nor Jerry Nadler, 
the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, are going to do the oversight that absolutely must be done to make sure that the FBI and Department of Justice are no longer doing what they did against the Trump campaign, you know, political, politically motivated investigations where um, they're just not making good decisions. They're not going to, though, because that's the nature of partisan politics, sadly. And the, you know, if this were a switched situation with Republicans in charge, media pressure would force a hearing. But there is no media pressure on the Democratic chairman. Having said that, the Senate is currently controlled by Republicans, and the Judiciary Committee is chaired by Lindsey Graham, who has plenty of time to go on television and talk about things and would seemingly have time to run a few more hearings. He had one very good hearing with the inspector general where they went over his report. There should probably be 10 to 20 hearings and going after all the people who were involved. And if they were doing these investigations properly, that would be very helpful to media reporting on it and also the current Department of Justice investigation that's going on. And that one is being run competently. And the way you know that is that the people who are being targeted continually leak to the New York Times and Washington Post that they're very concerned about where he's going. And um, so you kind of learn a little bit about it by those people who leak. And in fact, everything we've known about the Russia collusion hoax has has happened because they leak to friendly media figures at these major publications. And you kind of have to read between the lines to figure out exactly what's going on. But most recently, they say that they are very concerned that he's Seeming to be, he's seemingly interested. Durham, the prosecutor who's right. running this, is interested in like how they mishandled information at the CIA. Oh my so god! You go, oh well, good. It's, looks it, like he's interested in something that is worth being interested. in. It just shocks me how every time you know they get away with being called neutral observers, these leak, these leakers, like they are, you know, because they're in uh, bureaucratic positions that they have no political affiliations, no political leanings. They're just people who are bystanders watching what's happening and right. doing their duty by reporting it to the New York Times. It's like, come on. You clearly... You okay, know. more than that, though. It, like this last week, I think we saw some really disconcerting messaging from the media. Chuck Todd said, have we hit the point where we should not have political appointees over bureaucrats at the Department of Justice? I mean, that's tyrannical. Wow. This notion, so unconstitutional, this idea that unelected bureaucrats get to put us in jail, you know, and get to run political... Or- political investigations, and that there would be no way for the people to have any oversight of this is terrifying. And yet they say it openly on national television. Yeah. They reveal what their what their beliefs are, and they're very scary beliefs, all while claiming that if you do want political oversight of bureaucrats, that that's the, that's the evil yeah. thing that must be fought. They like the bureaucrats as long as they have the same politics as themselves. And, and, that and in Washington, D.C., that is generally how it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got Josh Hawley, who wants to move all the all the government agencies out into the Midwest, into the center of the country, which I don't know if it's the best idea, but... Why ruin the rest <laughs> of the country? Right? I, I agree with that. Okay, well, let's move on. Um, let's talk about Iowa, New Hampshire. This is American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. We're in the studios right now with Molly Hemingway. She's a senior editor uh, at The Federalist, and she also works for Hillsdale and D.C.'s campus out there. Um, so she's with us in Michigan today. Let's talk about Iowa, New Hampshire. I guess you... Or I understand you were out there. For me, the biggest story that I took away was the fact that voter turnout for the Democrats in both instances was not as high as they perceived it to be. It was suggested that perhaps, you know, none of these candidates, you know, even Bernie Sanders, who they claim is kind of this populist candidate, is not necessarily getting all those voters that haven't voted before, the voters you need to win a national election. Well, and that's particularly true in Iowa, where voter turnout was below the previous two caucuses that they'd had there, I believe. And 
in New Hampshire, I think they did exceed the 2016 okay. vote totals, but not what they'd hoped for given population growth. Yeah. So it is worrisome to Democrats. And I think it's an indication that people are having trouble settling on a candidate or uh, being particularly enthusiastic about them. And to compare it to what's happening in the Republican caucus and primary there, you know, uh, the Republicans obliterated their previous records, like just obliterated them with with turnout. And it's interesting to be there on the eve of these things because both the Republicans and Democrats are campaigning. And there, some people act like it's weird that Trump would be campaigning, forgetting that he also has a caucus or primary and is also running, you know, in this yeah. race. And he's not running against a particular candidate. All of the Democrats are running against multiple candidates. They're running against Trump at all times, but they're also trying to compete against these other people. Yeah. He doesn't know who he's running against yet. So um, he, he gets these big crowds and there's a lot of enthusiasm there. And we're not seeing that on the Democratic side. But who knows? I... Democratic voters have shown themselves to be very motivated to come out and vote. In 2018, they did everything they needed to do and that they had claimed they would be doing for the previous two years. I mean, they took the House. Well, they didn't take the Senate, though. Exactly. In fact, I think that is a major issue, so I want to correct myself. They, they completely failed in the Senate. And so we always hear about this being a wave election in 2018, but they didn't even win Senate yeah. seats. They lost Senate and seats. And the, se- the House seats they won wasn't comparable to what the Republicans won when Obama was president. Oh, quite comparable. But still, they did what they needed to do. They took the House that was huge for them, yeah. that enabled them to run what turned out to be a failed impeachment um, effort that backfired for them miserably. But they did what they, you know, what they were asked to do in that, in that case. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they come out in droves in later on this year. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you know, of course, in 2018, what we forget is a lot of those candidates in the House that th- that they were voting for were moderates. I mean, it, it depended on district to district. But, the you know, obviously the elections were tailored to the area you were living in. So if you lived in a, an area that Trump voted, you know, all these people previously had voted for Trump, they were running much more moderate politicians than what you could perhaps have uh, in this presidential election if Bernie, per se, is on the ticket. Would you agree? Like, I, I just struggle to see how, like, suburban college-educated women, for instance, would vote for, who have families and all that, would vote for Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump. At or, Bi- at Joe Biden's last rally in Iowa, there were all the people who come up before he comes up, and a lot of them were, you know, people who'd be lower on the ticket, and they were all but pleading with people, like, do not let someone like Bernie win Iowa because this is going to hurt us. Like, we won purple districts, or, yeah. you know, we are really on the bubble here. Uh, so I do think it is they're being explicit about that concern that if Bernie were at the top of the ticket, it would it could be really bad and they could even possibly lose the House, which they're not predicted to lose. Yeah. It's also true, though, that I think sometimes people overstate what would happen if you had someone like a Bernie Sanders on the ticket. I think a lot of people would make their peace. A lot of people already have made their peace with someone like Bernie and they convince themselves that it wouldn't be that bad. And they also recognize that he has a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, he won Iowa. He Let's won New Hampshire. That. Yeah, so Bernie has this enthusiasm. Some people have made the point that the voters that could potentially vote for Bernie are the same ones that could have been the blue-collar voters that used to be Democrats that voted for Trump in 2016. Um, We talked about this with Henry Olson last week on American View. You guys can check it out on our SoundCloud, Spotify pages. And uh, he made the point, though, that he does not think, Henry Olson didn't think that you could uh, get blue-collar workers to really embrace Bernie's socialism. And, and others have said that you could. And this is kind of like the big debate, I feel, uh, you know, is that is Bernie too social? Is, is socialism just too much of a turnoff? 
or does he have this populist appeal because he acts like he cares and he can win over blue collar workers? That's what really matters in the end, right? If he's going to compete with Trump in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan. Michigan. Uh, first off, you should just listen to what Henry Olson says because <laughs> he's he is really smart about this <laughs> stuff and was very good in 2016 and 2018. Yeah. His predictions are are very accurate. But I think that if Bernie Sanders were running in a different year and not against Donald Trump, he would actually have much greater success with this sector of the vote. Um, it, the problem for him right now is that the economy is booming. Everybody yeah. knows it. Everybody feels it. And so that message of I'm going to destroy the economy and return it to the people <laughs> doesn't have it's the not resonance. not really revolution time. <laughs> but it would have if it were even just four years ago. I mean, four yeah. years ago, people... People who were struggling for a decade or two decades, you know, there had been many years of just sort of stagnant growth and people were frustrated and they knew that things were working well for the elites and not for everyone else. And so that message would have resonated particularly against a traditional, you know, Mitt Romney, robotic Republican who had the same sort of messaging that you'd come to expect from Republicans. Donald Trump is a populist. He already has talked about returning the economy from the elites to the people. And he has done it in a way that is much more, you know, market-based, tax reform, tax cuts. And people have felt those, deregulation. And unions have another issue, which is they usually have amazing health care plans. And Bernie Sanders has a message of removing private health care plans. And that might not resonate with people for whom that's one of the best things they yeah. have going with their compensation package. That, that's a big issue in Nevada. They were talking about all the unions out there because of all the hotels and everything. You know, they don't want to lose the healthcare that they've worked so hard to negotiate. It'll be interesting, interesting to see what happens in Nevada and then across the country. If you had to predict today who the nominee was going to be, would you say it's Bernie Sanders? I don't know. I I think he has every reason to be the nominee in terms of you know. Everyone else is splitting the vote and they're not recognizing the threat he poses. It reminds me so much of Donald Trump in 2016 with the establishment throwing everything they can at Bernie. Um, Having said that, I don't think Bernie has shown a willingness to fight that, for instance, Donald Trump had in 2016. When the establishment took on Trump, he fought back. And when the establishment has taken on Bernie, he seems to lie down. He has said less about having the Iowa vote stolen from him than Donald Trump has said about the Iowa vote being stolen from Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Like, it's weird. Um, he did it in 2016, too, when he had Hillary Clinton on the ropes. He's like, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about your corruption or your emails. Why not? Yeah. You know, it's it's almost like he doesn't actually want to win the nomination. He just wants to spread the message. Yeah. So He's so old, too. Like, but okay, having said that, he's old. I mean, he's old and he just had a heart attack. But when I saw him on Monday, he looked fantastic and he had an energy. And what has he taken? <laughs> right. I and I'd been told that he he didn't look good and that he was gaunt and whatnot. So I was expecting yeah. that. So maybe I'm overcompensating. But he had a vibrancy that other candidates don't have. When I saw Joe Biden in Iowa, it reminded me of. Um, the show that has an energy vampire where the vampire yeah. doesn't suck blood. He just sucks energy and and d- depletes you of your energy. And Biden depleted the entire room of energy. And it was almost, it, you know, it was almost something to watch, but not what you would want in a candidate. Yeah. So last question, and we got to go to commercial break here. Uh, Bloomberg. We haven't talked about Bloomberg at all. Um, do you think, you know, I have some family that lives in New Hampshire and other places in the U.S., they are people that used, you know, were uh, supportive of conservative candidates, don't like Trump. They're suburban um, Americans. They say, I want to vote for Bloomberg. Do hmm. you think that he 
has potential in this race because obviously he has a lot of money. People have made the point though, you know, money alone might get you in the race, but it doesn't allow you to win the race. Um, his advertisements have been bombarding Michigan. We see them everywhere on our, our computers. I don't know if you guys get them as well like that, but I, I definitely notice them. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think this isn't, we're, we're witnessing whether you can buy a nomination and yeah. whether if you win, whether that's successful, whether you can buy the presidency. For him, this is not a lot of money he's spending. For everybody else, it's just like inconceivable amounts of money. It's so ironic that he's running on the Democrat side. I would say, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's been a Republican. He's been an independent. He's been a Democrat. He is, he's, he's, he's an establishment yeah. figure. He has some authoritarian tendencies, which I think yeah. some people don't like. His whole desire to like control what people put in their bodies and just, he's, he very much likes state control of like things. Like soda. <laughs> right. Um, I you think Google that, folks, if you haven't heard about that. You know, you take again, Bernie Sanders is running to make sure that people like Michael Bloomberg don't have all the power. And he's been yeah. very clear in that message. Would Bloomberg be able to, how would Bloomberg be able to get the Bernie voters? I don't know. I think in a weird way, Bloomberg voters would find themselves in their anti-Trumpism more able to vote for a Bernie than Bernie voters could vote for a billionaire, you know, like American equivalent of an oligarch. I mean, yeah. it just, it's not in their nature to be forced into voting for someone like him it's true especially not you know like you said democrat voters i don't know if they want to vote for the politician that literally justifies the idea that money can buy you elections but we'll see we'll see this has been molly hemingway here this is american view on radio free hillsdale 101.7 fm we gotta go to break but we'll be back in a couple minutes we got more news of the day coming up um jack mcpherson will be joining us in the studios here this has been radio free hillsdale 101.7 fm molly thank you so much thank you statements and tweets made about the department, uh, about uh, our people in the department, our, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job and to assure the courts and the prosecutors in the, in the department uh, that we're doing our work with integrity. I'm not going to be bullied or influenced by anybody, and I said at the time, whether it's Congress, newspaper, editorial boards, or the president, I'm going to do what I think is right. And, uh, you know, uh, the, I think the, the, I cannot do my job here at the department uh, with a constant background commentary that, that undercuts me. And that was Attorney That's General seemed- Bill Barr of the United States, obviously, telling Donald Trump, the president, to kind of, you know, get off my back a bit. Give me some space to do my job. Welcome to American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. We're in the second half of our show this morning. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, if you're tuning in to us via radio this weekend. Or you might be hearing us online as well. So thank you to all our listeners. Make sure you follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, all that jazz. Now with us in the studio is Jack McPherson. We just talked to Molly Hemingway. That was a great first half. We talked about a lot of this. I want to talk a little bit more about Bill Barr. Um, Jack, thanks for joining us. You've been on some of our episodes in D.C. before. Mm -hmm. Yep, thanks for having me. Uh, So, all right. 
the president just now, or about an hour ago, you know, the thing that he took away from the Barr interview, which is pretty great, is, quote, the president has never asked me to do anything in a criminal case. This does not mean I, I do not have as president the legal right to do so, but I have so far chosen not to. So mm-hmm. he's just kind of making the waters murkier. Uh, what's your take on this, Jack? I mean, a lot of Americans are out there wondering, you know, should I see this as as, as a super bad thing the president did, you know, just by tweeting about the case or... I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, we all know how eccentric uh, President Trump is, right? And and as somebody who's a Trump supporter, I accept and understand that he is eccentric and can kind of go out of bounds. I think that while this was an unexpected underswipe, which is what kind of the word that Fox News used to describe it with uh, Attorney General Barr, uh, I don't think it's necessarily unwarranted, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I guess we'll see what happens here. Basically, though, what we're, we're seeing, you know, a lot of people are reminded about what happened with Obama when Hillary Clinton was mm-hmm. investigated. Because if you remember, you know, the claim was oh, Obama would go on TV and he would just say, you know, I do not get myself involved in what happens with the Justice Department. But at the same time, I think that this case should promptly end. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, I think that's just textbook Obama. That's the difference between President Obama and President Trump. Um, President Obama had no resistance, right? President Trump is dealing with massive resistance. Uh, President Obama was in a situation where basically everybody did his bidding because everybody was following suit because he was going to do his thing. Um, and Obama, uh, you know, I'm, I would call him establishment at this point. Um, he was, you know, on the left as he was running, but he was definitely establishment there down the stretch. Everybody was following suit. Well, now people aren't following suit. And yeah. if you saw the Roger Stone sentencing, that, that was not, I mean, Attorney General Barr said himself he didn't expect that harsh of a sentence. Right. And so. And, and Hemingway, who was just in here, she made the point that, you know, the people that were literally making these sentences or suggesting them are the same people that were involved in the Mueller probe. Yep. They're the career bureaucrats at the Justice Department that have it out for Donald Trump. Yep. And the New York Times is the one that actually reported that first. It's it's shocking. And, you know, I, I like that you brought up the point about resistance because this is what we have to remember, folks, when we're talking about Donald Trump's presidency. You know, you want to take everything seriously that you hear criticism of the president, but do not forget that this president from both the media and within his administration from the bureaucrats that have existed in D.C., you know, for forever, a lot of them do not like the president because he disrupts the status quo, mm-hmm. he disrupts the swamp. And that results in a lot of these criticisms, which uh, we see coming out, obviously. Um, it, it always shocks me how they can describe them as neutral observers. You know, the fact that these so-called bureaucrats are somehow neutral, it, it just shocks my mind. So Jack is also from Texas. If you know him on campus, <laughs> you know that. If he's not wearing cowboy boots today, I'm a little bit disappointed, <laughs> but we'll let it pass. Uh, Jack, Texas, 2020, red, blue. What do you think? We're going red. You know, I was concerned there for a minute when uh, Senator Cruz narrowly defeated uh, Beto, but I think that that was a, a fluke. Uh, yeah. I think that Cornyn's seat is not going to be an issue. I think that it's definitely going to go red for both the White House and for the you know, Senate and House. Uh, you know, you could probably argue that there may be one or two House seats that go blue. I, I don't. I really don't think so, though. And and to be quite honest, I haven't paid as much attention to the House races in Texas, but I'm not concerned for the Senate. Definitely. Yeah, yeah you know, and we'll see what happens. To te- I mean, that's one of the states where it's like, okay, it kind of reminds me of our conversations. Jack and I would talk about this before the midterms in 2018. If you listen to the show back then, you would know this. 
where Jack would tell me, oh, it's going to be a landslide uh, Republican <laughs> victory. I don't know if I'd call it a landslide, but the Republicans didn't do too bad. They held on to the Senate. They didn't lose the House to the same extent that people thought they would, um, you know, not to the same extent that Obama lost the House to Republicans um, when he, after he had been re-elected. Now, you know, we're kind of in that situation again where we're trying to see where the map lies. I actually would advocate, I think that the president could be experiencing, could experience a landslide victory in, in some regards. Um, I think you could see some states that are going to shock a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, even even New Jersey could be up for grabs. But uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, you yeah. know, it's it's interesting to see what voter sentiment is. I have friends out in New Hampshire that, like we were talking about in the first half, they don't like Trump. They, you know, were originally Republicans, but they're also like kind of the East Coast Republicans where right. I wouldn't say principles super guide them. Maybe yeah. they have money in the stock market and are pretty socially liberal. So they're just turned off by all of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that may be true, but man, those numbers for President Trump in New Hampshire yeah. were something else. I mean, no, no incumbent has ever had those numbers. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, maybe not New Hampshire. But someone, hey, something unexpected. New Hampshire I think is going to go. You know, go Trump red. only lost New Hampshire by 0.4 percentage of a vote. People forget that. Really, it, it's in not that many electoral, you know, college um, votes, but he only lost by 0.4 percent. Like that state is even in reach itself, yeah. which is shocking. I mean, New Hampshire, like you said, it's not the type of state you think is like a textbook Trump type state. You think mm-hmm. Wisconsin, Nevada, Colorado, potential um, states he could swing. I don't know. I mean, obviously, he's not going to win states like my home state, Washington. Right. It's not going to happen. But I I mean, I think with any way you slice it in terms of who the Democratic candidate's going to be, I think he's going to go, I mean, pound for pound, I think Trump's got it. I really do. Yeah. Um, so, okay. The Wall Street Journal today has a editorial out from the editorial board titled Trump's Worst Enemy. He needs to stop tweeting about cases and let Barr do his job. The overall, we talked about Barr, obviously, already. But on a greater scope, you know, this is probably one of the biggest criticisms for the president. I just wish he would stop tweeting. I just wish mm-hmm. he would get past that. Uh, I, you know, I think there's some merit. I mean, I, I really do. Because when you, because, I mean, I interned in the DOJ and yeah. I worked in the speechwriting office. I am not that experienced. I'm not a career bureaucrat. But, you know, I could see <laughs> part some of the of swamp. The, I could see. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, yeah, imagine me a swamp creature. But I could see uh, the frustration and I can understand it. But I... Um, I think that Barr has some merit in that criticism. I think it would be, because I think Barr's on his side. I don't think Barr's on the resistance, right? I think that yeah. the people who sentenced Roger Stone are probably in the resistance, but I, uh, and Barr was surprised at that. Um, but I, I think Barr is doing a good job keeping it clean in there. And that's what people forget, you know. I think so many people, CNN, uh, uh, on these uh, networks that just have it out for the president, want to portray Barr now as this like rebel inside the yeah, White House. That's what they want to do. They have do. a narrative they're pushing. And I don't think that's what we got from that interview. And that kind yeah. of explains the tweet we read earlier from Donald Trump, where he basically says, you know, this is what he said that people aren't talking about, mm-hmm. that I don't interfere in these investigations, but I do tweet out my thoughts, mm-hmm. which which is super interesting. I don't think Barr's going anywhere. Of course no, they want. I don't they think would so love either. if he got fired. Yeah, they and would. And if, if he got fired, I would be not super happy about it. I agree. But I don't think he's going to. I think that President Trump, people have this idea that he somehow like does not react well to criticism. And Molly made the point earlier. She's like, people don't understand how this guy thinks. Mm-hmm. And I think that's 100% accurate. I think his reaction was actually very appropriate, too, uh, in terms of this. Because when you look at Jeff Sessions, whom I was a speechwriter for, I mean, that's that's who yeah. I worked under. I saw that, tumultu- that tumultuous time. Um, uh. You know, you see how Trump reacted to him and what Sessions said about that. Well, this is a way different reaction. 
Uh, Barr is giving a fair criticism. And Stephanie Grisham, the White House spokesperson on this issue, says, yeah, he's got a right to publicly critique the president. And the president, like uh, in like manner, has the right to publicly critique yeah. uh, Attorney General Barr. But I think I don't think they're treating barbs. Right. Well, I guess we'll see what happens there. You know, it's it's so interesting to um, to watch these stories unfold and watch the way the, the media wants to push them. This has been a, you're listening to American View right now, where Hillsdale meets the nation. Um, thank you, Jack, so much for joining us. Thanks today. for having me. Yeah. So, Michael Bloomberg, folks, let's talk a little bit more about Michael Bloomberg because the truth is he's doing better in the polls, and he had an advertisement out this last week that is getting a lot of people's attention. Let's go ahead and hear this ad. What he does in this ad, for those that, you know, if you haven't seen the visuals of it, we're going to play the sound for you, is he basically puts up past presidents making inspirational speeches with some of the more vulgar comments that President Trump has made. So let's hear what this sounds like and talk about if it's effective. Ask not what your country can do for you. It was all... Ask what you can do for your country. Knock the crap out of them, would you? Their cause must be our cause, too. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters. And we shall overcome. As soon as we left, they knocked the out of everybody. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Americans are generous and strong and decent, not because we believe in ourselves. Like to punch him in the face. But because we hold beliefs beyond ourselves. Grab him by the The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. This is the crap we have to put up with? It belongs to the brave. I never want to be called to lose. I'm asking you to believe. Not in my ability to bring about change, but in yours. How about if I take his money... But in the end, I screw him and don't do anything for him. Let's bring back presidential text, Mike. Okay. So that's the ad. Look, for, for a billion bucks, you can make some pretty darn good advertisements. I'll give you that, Mike Bloomberg. And uh, we see that. You know, anybody that watches that ad, I think it's, it's slightly effective in some sense. You get the music playing, the dramatic music. You got the inspirational speeches that you love, at least the beginnings. I mean, but then you get to Obama, and at least for me, I think, okay, you're seeing the part of Obama that plays well on sound. Isn't it unfair to take, you know, the best two seconds from every single president's best moments and then and then exclude everything else and then take the worst of Donald Trump's comments that he's ever made in his life, even outside of politics, and put that together? That's what's happening. So is it fair? Probably not, but it might still be effective. And that's that's what we gotta ask, you know. Look, I think obviously if you are somebody that dislikes the president to start with, then that 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 ad is gonna change your mind. I don't know though if that ad really is going to change people's minds. But it but it might. It depends, I think, specifically on the type of candidate Bloomberg runs as. And right now, you know, Hemingway made the point that um, she made the point that we are still figuring out if money can actually buy an election, if that is possible. And it's so funny that this is happening on the Democrat side because they're the ones that claim to be so against money buying politics. I would add, and something we haven't talked about yet, is the very fact that you have not really heard Bloomberg speak for himself. 
We see his team come out with great ads. They are there's a story this week. Um, I think Andrew, you were telling me about this. The fact that uh, Andrew's our producer here at American View about the fact that he's been buying like or trying to DM meme pages, trying to like buy memes. Yeah, he's he's doing something called like mini influencing. So he's giving like $150, $200 to people between, you know, 1000 followers and 10,000 followers to just promote him. So it's like it's like a new kind of Instagram social media influencing. Pretty crazy stuff. I mean, this guy, it's like okay, if I you have bucket loads of cash, what do you do with it? Well, you know, and like this is the first time we've ever seen something like this. It is unprecedented completely. Um, and the president is strong right now. He's doing very well. I don't know if this makes a, de- a dent. The question is, can he get out of the primaries? And everybody right now has been dismissing it because he hasn't been campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire. But that's not his strategy. His strategy is to win in the big states, to win on Super Tuesday. New poll out today, folks. This poll says that he is leading by one percentage point, one percentage point in Florida. What does this mean? Andrew, you saw some other polls. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I I'm, I I've saw I saw some polls where he's contesting in you know South Carolina behind Biden. He's in Arkansas. Some of these states, you know, they you don't really think about as being big Dem primary states, but you know have forty votes in the convention. And I think he's realizing that there's not a clear leader right now. You know, there's not as of this time, it doesn't look like there's going to be someone who hits that threshold in the convention. I think he's hedging his bet to become the, the 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 winner at the contested convention. Yeah, I mean, Iowa is like the worst case scenario you could have for Democrats. It like fed, fed right into Bernie Sanders, you know, his campaign, the idea that like it's all corrupted against him. That helped him out. And even though he won New Hampshire, you look at all the people, you know, what? He won with 26% of the vote. What about all the other percentage points that voted for moderates when you add them all up? You're not voting for Biden. <laughs> that guy might not be around for this election, the way he's talking. Um, he's a little bit old. But, uh, all jokes aside, you know, the moderate, the desire for a moderate Democrat candidate is still there. The question is, does it happen or do they get swept away? And that we will see, folks. That we will, we will see. This has been American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. You know, in other news, outside politics, this is something I think we can all relate to. There's been a video kind of going viral this week of a man punching the seat in front of him on an American Airlines flight. We've all been there. Let's let's hear this story, uh, courtesy of NBC, and then we'll talk about it a bit. Folks on social media are taking sides over a viral video that revives the age-old debate to recline or not to recline on an airplane. An American Airlines customer says... She put her seat back after everybody was done eating. Well, apparently the guy behind her didn't like it. She says, yeah, he started doing that. Punching, punching her seat over and over again. (laughs) Now, this woman says she has a bad disc in her neck. She was afraid of being hurt. She says, giving the guy the look. Poor lady, poor lady. She has a bad disc in her neck. Don't we all have a bad disc in our neck, Andrew, and we're on a flight, you know, going cross country and we got 30 inches of seat pitch? (laughs) Yeah, I I agree, but... I think what's interesting about this video is how divided it has made the internet. 50% of people are on the woman's side, 50% of people are on the men's side. So I, I don't know. What's, what are your thoughts on that? I hate to say it, but I can sympathize with the guy. I don't want to admit it. But honestly, like, haven't you ever had that person um, go back or, or be in, I guess, her position too? Like, you always feel bad whenever you lower your seat back. 
But like on those planes, like those seats should never be back, honestly. Like that's just harmful to anybody. Hot take there, but like, you know, like give us more leg room if you're going to let our seats to recline because right now it's not fun to have somebody's head in your lap for 10 hours on a plane. I mean, it's just gotten so bad. I mean, that's something, you know, regardless of your political sides, we should all be able to agree on. Like, the oligarchy that is airlines frustrates the heck out of me. I mean, do you know how hard it is to be a new airline and to enter the market? I mean, I guess it's kind of a different thing, but I, I would argue it's the reason, like, seat pitch and everything is so bad. It's because they ha- they dominate a service that they know we can have, that, that we know we require, you know? I mean, what's your what's your favorite airline to fly, and what's the one you, you dislike the most? I mean, I I've usually I usually only fly Delta. Yeah, but which is um, what a lot of people do out here. It's a good one. It's yeah, a good one. I, I I enjoy Delta. I think it's a good one. I've the the few times I've flown or when I was younger, I really like Southwest. That's another. They got the good services. You know, yeah. they got the the free check bags and no change fees. Everybody likes that. You know, I I, I myself I will say Delta's pretty good, but you know their seat pitch is better than American or United. But I'm I'm more of a you know I like Alaska. So wait, wait, you keep saying seat pitch. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so that's the distance between um, the seat in front of you and the end of the cushion. Okay, okay. And that's how much leg room you have, basically. It's leg room. Gotcha. Um, And, uh, you know, if you you, people don't know this, but if you fly like American, they're going to have a lot less leg room. And when you buy, you know, you book your flights in Google Flights, they actually tell you about, you know, how much inches of leg room you're going to get on that plane. Which is good to know, because there's a big difference between 28 inches on Spirit or 32 inches. Um, JetBlue, by the way, has the most. I think they have 32 or 33. Did you just say Spirit has 28? Yeah. I just booked a Spirit <laughs> Airlines flight, so I'm... To I'm, Houston, right? <laughs> We're going to Houston. Yeah, I'll, I'm looking forward to that now. Great. All right. <laughs> We're both going to Houston. This has been American View, folks. Um, you've been listening to, to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. It's been a pleasure being with you today. And um, we, we really hope you enjoy your weekend. We'll be back here on Monday with more commentary, more interviews. If you're just joining us now, go online. Check us out, American View WRFH, on Facebook or on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud. And you can listen to our full interview today with Molly Hemingway, a senior editor, <coughs> excuse me, at The Federalist, and also a fellow, teaching fellow, at Washington, in DC, Washington D.C.'s Hillsdale College campus. So check that all out online. This has been American Viewer, Hillsdale Meets the Nation on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Have a great weekend.